Hey everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. As always, we're super pumped to join us today to have Josh Yen. We're going to be responding to Cosmic Skeptic on the Resurrection of Jesus. What's up, Josh? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you, Zach? Oh, I'm doing good. Beautiful day. Uh, I just woke up and <laughs> we're ready to go. So it should be a lot of fun talking about the resurrection. So yeah, do you have any preliminary thoughts, Josh, on this video? From We have just a short clip pulled up from Alex O'Connor that we're going to walk through. So Josh, do you have any like, preliminary thoughts before we get into it? I think talking about the resurrection is always very, very fun and very interesting because, as you've said previously in the kind of the development of this, it was it's really one of the cornerstones of the Christian faith. You, I mean, you could see kind of this idea of all the other biblical texts, yeah, it's important to view them in a certain way or stuff like that. But to some degree, at least to me, there is some sense of leeway. Like you could look at the Genesis and it's not like, oh, you have to take this literally or anything like that. But when you come to the resurrection, you pretty much have to take it literally. You can't go on and go full on Jordan B. Peterson and say, oh, this was just a psychoanalytical text here. I mean, it is indeed the very cornerstone of the Christian faith and it is a very interesting thing uh, to discuss. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you. So we're going to play this video. We have timestamps marked out. We're just going to play clips and comment on them. Um, as always, like we're not doing this out of like malice or anything, but really just like appreciate what Alex says. Just going to disagree a lot. But yeah, so let's get into it. If I can pull up the clip. So the evidence that's been presented thus far, and admittedly we haven't had much time to go through it, has been uh, biblical. Uh, and that's because the only evidence that there is available uh, that can come close to proving the bodily resurrection of Christ is biblical. You have the Gospels and you have the Epistles. There are uh, references, it seems, in, in some historical documents, such as the writings of Josephus, the first century Jewish uh, historian. However, the historical consensus is very plainly that this was uh, a forgery by later Christian writers. Um, it's very clear that Josephus wouldn't have written about uh, Jesus rising from the dead and being Christ as a Jew. Um, so the vast majority of historians reject that out of hand. In fact, Okay, so first clip here on Josephus. So, Josh, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I guess we should have probably figured this out off stream, but I mean, here we yeah. are. No worries. I think perhaps I could say a few things just to kind of framework this kind of perhaps the first part of this a response. Mm -hmm. And maybe I think that a very interesting thing that we always have to ask ourselves, especially when you, we're using historical sources, is, is what exactly is the point of the historical source? Because sometimes you look at a historical source and we're saying, well, this source is here to give us the full picture exactly what happened. That's not always how historians use sources. We sometimes like to use a small part of a source, maybe even just one phrase of a primary source, and say, well, that's good evidence for this part of my argument. Then I'll bring in something else from another part of the argument. So we really have to think about, is Josephus being used by, um, I think, uh, Alex's opposition? I forgot who's he debating, but he, his opposition, is he using the source as his entire thing to say, well, because Josephus says Jesus resurrected, that Jesus must have resurrection, or is he using that source as a support for one of his small premises in his overall argument? And that's just something we want to keep in mind when we are using historical sources. Yeah, yeah, that's super good. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the full Josephus quote here, and this is the like more later one. So I think Alex, just right off the bat, he's wrong. That I think most scholars would agree that there's some forgery involved in this quote, but there's a historical core. I think that's what the consensus is. What I want to do here is just to add on to Josh is read the quote and talk about why there's good reason to think that there is some historical core to this Josephus quote. So here's the quote. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah and went upon this accusation of the principal men among us. Pilate had condemned him to a cross those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared for them, spending a third day, restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still not to this day disappeared. 
So there's obviously things here that point to like some like later Christians adding on, like talking about like Jesus rising from the dead. Like I don't think Josephus a Jew is going to like admit to that, but there is good reason to think that there is like an authentic core. And I do want to say a lot of like what I'm about to say, I found through like looking at different resources, especially if you go to belief map, it's a website like like Genta, he has a lot of stuff on this Josephus quote. So you can check that out. But one argument to think that this quote is like has some historical core is the non-Christian phrasing. So if you look up, you can just pull up this quote. You can look it up on like Google or whatever. <laughs> Famous last words. It says there's there's things here that point that like a non-Christian originally wrote this, like say Josephus. So first Christians typically didn't find Jesus as just Jesus, but rather Jesus Christ or Christ. Uh, if you remember, Jesus is the Christ, the one who fulfills the prophecies according to Christianity. But in this Josephus quote, all you have is Jesus. So it's just a hint that like maybe there's some non-Christian elements here. Um, Josephus says that Jesus is a wise man, which is a lower view of Jesus than the Christians are going to have. So again, like pointing to like not just a Christian forgery. He says that he's a doer of wonderful works, which is not how Christians are typically going to refer to Jesus. Like they're going to refer to him as the Messiah, the incarnated son of God, like things like this, uh, the, the savior of the world, not just a wise man. That's a very low view of Jesus if it's a completely forged quote. Um Jesus didn't win the Greeks, his followers did. So this is something like Josephus talks about in this quote, how um, Jesus wins the Greeks. But Jesus didn't really win many Greeks if you read like the Gospels. It's more of his followers who go and share the gospel with the Greeks. Um, and finally, a tribe of Christians is not like a Christian perspective on these things. So if this is just totally like made up by Christians. Like why does he call them the tribe of Christians? This isn't how Christians would view themselves. So at least like my conclusion, which is like the, I think the general like scholarships consensus is just that there's added that the Christians added to this, but there is a historical core um, from which Josephus is drawing about Jesus. So, yeah. I completely agree with that idea. And I, I think if we turn, and I think if we could build on a bit more, it's like you look at other sentences and in, in the same quote that you've read, and it's like Pilate had condemned him to a cross. This is, this is clearly not um, a, a statement which is about, oh, he just heard this from um, the Christians. The reason for this is because if we look at other works, and, and I think Alex might have missed out on responding to the other works surrounding the divinity or at least the situation of Christ at the time, like your Tacitus, like your Justin Martyr, like your Tertullian, they also talk about different parts of the resurrection narrative and provide very good evidence for uh, a certain case of an argument. And, and I, I think this perfectly ties in with our kind of thoughts that these arguments or these sources should not mainly be used just to say that these are directly the same as what we see in the Bible, but rather they are representing or they are supporting certain aspects of what we see in the Bible. And just a quick kind of framework that we can just bear in mind as we go through this video is kind of that idea that Tacitus, a greatly Roman, uh, anti, almost an anti-Christian source, does recognize that Jesus did exist, that Jesus had a sense of divinity, that Jesus was indeed crucified, and that the disciples believed in a resurrection. If we turn to Josephus, we figure out that Jesus most likely died because we see that well, in Josephus, a lot of people who were crucified and indeed taken down and sent into great care were actually seen and were actually accepted as well. Most of them, those people died as well. So even if you had great care after being crucified, you'll most likely die. So Jesus probably died if he didn't have great care and got thrown into a tomb for three days. So and if we could look at further sources in Josephus as well, and these are using sources which are completely unrelated to the ones that uh, they're talking about. We know that Jesus was buried. How do we know that? Well, in the Jewish war, another work of um, Josephus, we see that Josephus says that even the enemies of the Israels were buried. They buried crucified criminals, which gives us very, very good reason to know that Jesus was buried. Note that that burial might not be the burial we see in, in, in the Bible, but, but at least it's pointing towards some sense of a burial of 
Jesus. So we have this idea that different parts of the resurrection argument or the account for the resurrection are supported by a variety of different sources. And it's not just about, oh, this is just Josephus's uh, discussion, which has been kind of debunked or de I, I'm not sure a good, better word for it, but mm -hmm. but there's another word which has been dismissed. There are a lot of other things which support certain areas of of the argument. And when we look at it from a historical perspective, we, we can see that these so-called problems are not actually problems in the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. So let's get into this next clip where we talk about extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So yeah, but great stuff, Josh. In fact, Christian historians too, and they don't use it for that reason. So we're left with just the gospels and the epistles. Now, the Gospels, of course, were written a generation or two after the events that they portray, and it's very easy to see how stories can adapt uh, over that kind of time. Uh, one thing that we have to be careful of is to ensure that we are providing a sufficient level of uh, justification for the severity of the claim. Now, if I were trying to prove a simple historical claim that somebody, like, that Jesus Christ existed, for instance, it probably wouldn't take too much. It would take as much as trying to prove that Socrates existed or that Julius Caesar existed. But we're not just talking about a normal historical claim. We're talking about something far more extraordinary than that. And I'd like to ask you what it would take to convince you, just as I've been asked what it would take to convince me. What would it take to convince you that somebody had risen from the dead? And I think that it takes more than what we are presented with this evening. Okay, so let's go, Josh. Extraordinary claims extraordinary, require extraordinary evidence. Um, what are your thoughts here? I think it's a very interesting kind of argument. And perhaps the best way to look at it is perhaps from a more scientific lens. Because I think when we look at science, it's not necessarily the case that we see, oh, extraordinary th claims require extraordinary evidence. It's sufficient claims require sufficient evidence. But well, what exactly does it, it, does it mean? Because if you look at kind of um, a prior probabilistic kind of um, calculi, or you realize that probability is not reduced to this mere lens of, oh, this is just a prior probabilistic or Bayesian kind of understanding. Because if you turn to things like evolution, the existence of human sentient life, you could say that the prior probability of it is almost close to zero. You can look at any of the discussions of anthropic principles, both from theists and atheists alike, you see the probability is almost zero. But in reality, you look at the situation, you say that prior probability actually doesn't really change the fact that we accept these as good scientific arguments. As a result, I don't think we can reduce anything to just extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, because I don't think priors or even probabilistic calculi simpliciter has any effect on what we should be accepting as strong arguments or not strong arguments. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I probably mostly agree with you. I like when I hear extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, like basically what I think about now more is like the idea that just like low priors need a lot of evidence. So, like if the pro like the probability of something is like seems low, like you're going to need a lot of evidence to like show that like this view is true. Um, which is interesting because, like, I was literally just reflecting, like, listening to this clip, which I hadn't before, like, in prep for this, like, on, like, say, like, the Big Bang. Like, we have all of, like, space-time condensed into, like, this hot, dead state and expands out of this, like, singularity. And it's like, well, what's the prior probability of that happening? And it's like, it can't be very high. Like, there's nothing, like, built into the hypothesis of, like, theism or atheism that says, like, that's the way the world is going to be. Um, but, like, we all believe that that's what happened. <laughs> so, like, we have to, like, deal with that. It's like... So it's just like, to me, it's like, okay, well, yeah, there's going to be low priors, but if we have good evidence, then like, yeah, we should still accept the claims. Like, just like we accept like the big bang or something like that. Um, and then we look at things like, say, like if the, if God exists and creates the universe, well, like, and then there's like some reason he creates like morally valuable beings like you and me, like, well, maybe there's going to be some reason why like, he's going to like, want to like reveal himself to the world. And that's going to like raise like the priors of like religiously significant claims, such as like 
the resurrection or I'm fine with this being applied to like the book of Mormon or Islam or whatever. Um, so that's just some things there where I'm like, sure. But like, I don't see that as like the end point, like just saying extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. This isn't extraordinary evidence. So we should just like move on, but like more of like the beginning of like, well, we, like what evidence should we expect? Like if Jesus rose from the dead. Um, so, yeah. I completely agree with, agree with you on that point. And I think it just demonstrates perfectly the idea that it, it, it isn't sufficient to just throw everything down to probabilistic, not, not that I'm saying probability is bad or anything, but it seems just that when we're looking at an, every individual situation, there's a lot more which goes into it. Now, of course, a probabilistic calculus guy is going to come back to me and say, well, you're just putting all of that into probability calculus. But, but I, I do think that when we're looking at everything from a case-by-case approach, we realize that there is a way more complex a situation than what uh, initially just meets the eye. <laughs> I wonder, like, so... Alex is very critical. He's, or in the past, he's been very critical of young earth creationists. So I wonder if like a young earth creationist could run like a symmetrical, a symmetrical argument as Alex is making here. We're saying like, well, Alex, the prior probability of evolution is really low. Like, come on, man. Like this is an extraordinary claim to say that through some sort of process, whether it's random or like there's some sort of thing going off like convergence or whatnot, like the prior probability is super low, Alex. So we're going to need some extraordinary evidence to show that evolution is true. And I just don't see that. So I'm going to just like not believe in evolution. Like, it seems like to me, like, if we're just going to stop there, like, the potentially, like, you're going to open all, all kinds of doors to believe all kinds of, like, just, like, very, like, um, odd things if you kind of just stop at this point. So, yeah. I completely agree with your analysis. Wow, you're so kind to me, Josh. You need to, like, destroy me one of these days. <laughs> um, okay, let's keep on going. The gospel accounts are, for a start, contradictory and filled with mythology, even in just the resurrection story. Uh, for instance, we can talk about the empty tomb. How many women discovered the empty tomb? The Gospel of John says it was one, Matthew two, Mark three, and Luke even more than that. Now this may seem a completely irrelevant, uh, a complete irrelevancy, and of course it doesn't uh, affect the story in, in, in any uh, significant manner. However, remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about the inspired word of God reporting on what is the single most important event in human history, if true. And I think that internal consistency is the very least we could expect from the sources which we're relying upon to provide us with evidence for that uh, occurrence. Okay, um, woman at the tomb, classic one. What do you think, Josh? I mean, I think I, I have a lot of more thoughts which is applicable here, though I though I would perhaps leave them to a bit later because I think it, it perhaps fits in with a more kind of also another his argument, so I'll leave that to later. But what I think is very interesting here is just well, what exactly are what exactly is the role of the Bible when we're talking about the historical case for the resurrection? And I and now I don't want fundamentalists to run run into Hong Kong and fly to Hong Kong to rip my head off. When I'm saying this, but I think that if we're looking at this purely from the perspective of, well, is the is the resurrection historically accurate or, or, or whatever you want to formulate the argument as, what we have to look at it is, well, these sources should be seen as historical sources, not necessarily religious documents or, or holy scriptures which have to follow inerrancy. And of course, you could say, well, maybe on a theological level, you want to affirm this inerrancy, but... I don't necessarily see the, that, that that has to be the case if we're just purely looking at from the lens of this argument. And that's just something that we might want to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Like, so like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not convinced in any way that this is a contradiction first. Mm -hmm. So like, I like, I would hold like inerrancy, like depending on your definition. Like I believe like Bible is inerrant and things like that. Like for the sake of this point, I'll just grant Alex. Let's say that there is a contradiction here. Um, even though I don't think he, and in any way fulfills his burden to show how there is a contradiction. Cause I think these are, could be seen as complementary rather than contradictory. But like, let's just say there's a contradiction. I don't see how that's a problem for building a case for like the resurrection. Like I was taking a class in historiography and we talked about like 
when significant events occur, people have different ac accounts of like what happened. Like look at like different testimonies regarding like 9-11. Like when something significant happens, people see different things because it's a very like big event that makes a big mark on them and they forget details and stuff. So like when I look at the, we look at the gospels, it's like when you have this like say a woman at the tomb and there's different accounts, it's like, okay, well, at least to me, it's like, okay, so something happened here. Something significant happened here. Um, it would, I think what, what precisely these discrepancies show is that it wasn't a bunch of people gathered in a room just trying to like neatly put together their story. Um, maybe you want to say it was a hallucination. I'm obviously pretty convinced it's a resurrection. Like, but I think these like discrepancies actually just show like something significant happened here. And that's why we have um, these uh, different accounts of what happened in terms of like, say the woman at the tomb. Um, and like, these are very minor details. Like, it's not like John saying Jesus rose from the dead and Luke's not like, it's just like, it's like one gospel says there's one woman, one says there's two, one says there's three, and they could all be true. Like they can just be complementary of each other. And like, you know, a lot of people have talked about how these can be harmonized. So that's my thoughts. I just don't, like, I honestly see this as something that supports the resurrection rather than counts against it. So yeah, that's my opinion. I completely agree with you on that point. And, and I, I also agree with you that I, I personally don't see any contradiction between uh, the texts as, as presented. I'll, I think it was mainly just to say perhaps just to clarify it, just so I don't get fundamentalists trying to rip me apart, as as some have tried to do in my new Genesis series. But but essentially, I just want to clarify that I'm not saying that the Bible is in, in error. I'm just trying to say, well, it's just that if you're purely looking at it from the historical perspective, then the inerrancy is not so much of a big deal. Just when fo solely focused on um, this kind of pursuit of kind of historical argument. Yeah, I mean, like I totally agree with inerrancy. I just think like. Like for arguing for the resurrection, you don't need that. So yeah, um, let's get into this next clip where he's going to talk about the earthquake in Matthew. If my computer loads, uh, there are also uh, other instances that, that, that makes us uh, that, that should make us skeptical that these are historical documents, such as the fact that it's only in the book of Matthew that there is uh, uh, presented uh, the idea that there was a great earthquake and that angels moved the stone away from the tomb and allowed Jesus to rise from the dead. You would have thought that the other gospel writers would have at least noticed that, and if they did, probably would have included it in their narratives, but they didn't. Um, elsewhere in the gospels, you Okay, very brief here, and I think we're going to, like, I have probably way too detailed of a response for literally, like, a 20-second clip, um, but I'll let you go to you first, Josh. I think it's a very interesting thing. I've looked at your response and it seems fascinating. And, and I think you should definitely say it because I mean, I've never heard of it before and it seems definitely fascinating. But I think essentially what we have to do when we're viewing these kind of situations, especially about these uh, different ideas is that we have to view these as people or, or I mean, disciples or whatever you want to call them, people trying to present their, their approach and their thoughts about the situation. Naturally, they're trying to present a different account or at least not a different account, but a different approach to uh, a discussion as a lawyer might approach a criminal case from a certain perspective. Um, maybe a psychologist would approach a criminal, the same criminal case from a completely different psychologist. You might say, well, maybe the fact that someone used a knife to kill, to kill someone was a significant fact and surely you can't, um, you can't miss it out. But then maybe the psychologist doesn't even care if there's a knife. He's just thinking about, well, what was going through his mind because he, be, to uh, kill the person or the victim. So, I think in each individual situation, what may seem as a big part of the story might not actually be as big a part to the certain writer. I think that that could definitely be uh, the case in, or at least when we're talking about uh, the resurrection or the tomb moving or or the earthquake. And and also there's another thing where I sometimes think that atheists, or at least the critique of atheists, puts the Christian into a lose-lose situation. And this is not necessarily a, a formal response or anything, but it's just kind of thinking, well, 
let's assume all the four gospels said exactly the same things. There's just a few grammatical differences or a few different punctuations. You could you could almost expect the atheist to then say that it is a complete conspiracy if everything was completely the same, at least from a historical lens. If I saw um, 10 documents in from first person sources and they all said exactly the same thing, I'll, I'll, I'll have a few red flags popping up in my mind when I'm res uh, reviewing the sources. So there's just this kind of idea that no matter what we want to do with the sources, there'll always be a bit of a problem there. So it's just best to view them as historical sources. And that's perhaps the best we could go off. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff here. And what I'll add is just like, it's almost like just like an argument from silence. Like, it seems like he's saying, so the other gospels don't record this event. So like the other gospels are unreliable. But like that just doesn't follow. And like, even if it did, like if this was a way like we did, like arguments, like there's a lot of things we're going to have to deny. So there's a great article by Tim McGree on the argument from silence. And he gives a couple examples here that I'm going to read. First, um, the extant writings of Greek historians of the 5th century BC make no reference to the city or people of Rome. Therefore, probably Rome did not exist in the 5th century BC. Like, that's just like obviously false. But if Greek historians don't mention it, like, ooh, well, if we're going to follow Alex's line of argument, then maybe we have to like deny the existence of Rome um, in the 5th century BC, of course. Um, number two, extant sources make no reference to the donation of Constantine until seven centuries after Constantine's death. Therefore, probably the donation of Constantine is a forgery. Um, and number three, in his Germania, Tacitus sets himself to, in the task of enumerating the peoples of Germany. Therefore, the absence of certain Germanic peoples from Germania proves, or at least makes it very likely, that they did not exist at the end of the first century AD. Like, arguments from silence just aren't helpful, um, and just, it's just fallacious. And, you know, if we're going to follow this line of reasoning, then there's a lot of other historical events we're going to have to deny, which, you know, we don't really want to do that. So, yeah, I just don't really see the issue here in terms of, like, what Alex is arguing. I completely agree with you on that, and I don't think there's anything more I could possibly add to this argument from silence. I should remain mm -hmm. silent. Yeah, highly encourage you check out Tim McGree's article "Argument from Silence" if you want to read more on this. Because yeah, awkward pause. Why wait till the video? So you've got uh, contradictions, not just uh, related to the to the resurrection story. Uh, for instance, uh, the story of Lazarus, uh, Lazarus, who in the Book of John is raised uh, to prove that Christ is is uh, is who he says he was. Um, and yet in the Book of Luke, the same Lazarus first is revealed to be in fact a fictional character because he appears first in a parable, uh, and secondly. When uh, it is asked if Lazarus can be raised, Jesus says, no, he shouldn't be, um, because if they're not going to listen to Abraham and the prophets, then they're not going to be persuaded by that either. And that is just a blatant contradiction. So, Okay. Uh, what are your thoughts here, Josh? I think the Lazarus uh, argument he uses here is just, I, I, I don't want to be mean to him, but absolutely horrendous, because <laughs> like I, I, Josh is a very, very common name. And, mm -hmm. and if a teacher calls, and I, there, there's been multiple times where there's multiple Joshes in my class, like there's sometimes where a teacher would like tell off the other Josh and start screaming from one end of the class and say, like, Josh, what on earth are you doing? Like if we were to follow his logic about Lazarus, you could very much easily come to the conclusion that, oh, the teacher was telling off me as well as him. But in the fact that he wasn't telling off me was somewhat contradicting his other account of telling off the other student, which is clearly quite a flawed situation. So, so what I think here, perhaps another way to illustrate it is just to look at the parable of the hare and the tortoise. I'm not sure they call them parables or fables, but essentially there's this idea that, well, the idea that these two people have to be the same is not only nowhere stated in the Bible, but it seems to suggest that if, if you say, well, look at the hare and the tortoise, you could say, well, this, you could find a similar critique to say, well, maybe, oh, a race between a hare and tortoise would never occur. Furthermore, since my hare, my pet's, or my pet rabbit never races my pet churches around the garden well then it 
demonstrates that this parable or this fable is completely wrong. But by doing that, you're completely missing the entire point of the story or the, the fable in the first place. And I think that that is exactly what um, cosmic uh, skeptic does here, or should I call him Alex, does here in this situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, once again, I'll just say, like, this isn't an issue, at least to me. And again, like, even if, like, say there was a contradiction, how is this an argument against the resurrection? He hasn't explained how this is an argument against the resurrection, just to say, look, this would be just maybe just an argument against inerrancy, if he could even show that this was a contradiction. Um, but I mean, there's possible answers. Like, a lot of people think that, like, the story in Luke is a parable. So if that's the case, there's really one Lazarus and one that's a story of a fictional Lazarus. Um, maybe there's just two Lazaruses. Like, they're just, like, I, he hasn't done enough work here to show that there's a contradiction. So, yeah. Completely agree with you on that. Again, I stress these are small contradictions, but the claim is so large that we should expect at the very least a historical accuracy. Another thing. Okay, this is just a very short clip because he's, like, this is the sum of, I think, his argument showing that, like, when there's a bunch of small inconsistencies, then, like, we're going to have some reason to, like, um, doubt the, like, historic reliability. But, like, I just don't really see this. Like, the claim that 9-11 happened is a super large claim, and there's many differing testimonies on, like, what exactly went down, but we'd be silly to disregard the historical event of 9-11. Um, so, yeah, that was my thoughts. I completely agree with you because I've recently been doing some history and I, on the Tet Offensive. I'm writing a bit of a an, an essay or some coursework for uh, my history course. And essentially, I'm going through these these texts, like these CIA, the CIA recently declassified some documents on the Tet Offensive. So I've been scrolling through like a hundred odd different documents over the past like week. And you look at them and some of them are even from the same source, the same government within three days of each other. And there are various different kind of, not contradictions, but inconsistencies between uh, the different accounts are telling about different kind of developments. Even in, in fact, in some of them, in the top part of the report, you'll see, oh, there, there's, there's significant movements in uh, North Vietnamese forces in the area. And then in the second part of the report, they'll be saying, oh, there is no significant uh, movements worth of note for the president. And then you can have all these kind of small differences throughout kind of your historical pursuit. And, and in no situation where you then say, well, these sources are just completely pointless. Let's throw them all into the bin because there are very, very useful sources. So I essentially think that if we are just looking at this from a historical case, which I think that uh, we are doing when we are approaching a historical case for the resurrection, hence we're calling it the historical case for the resurrection, not oh, the biblical inerrancy case for the resurrection. Well, we, are, we should expect these inconsistencies and just go on with them because that's something that historians throughout history have learned to do. And that's something as that we, if we're pursuing this historically, should also take into consideration and, and make the most of. Yeah, I just, yeah, I just think that yeah, I completely agree with you and we should probably keep going. So let's just look at this next clip. Another thing that should give us cause for concern with the gospels and the epistles, uh, but I'll start with the gospels, is what appears to be instances of mythology. And one of the hallmarks of mythology is what some people have called plagiarism uh, in quite a derogatory manner, but I don't think so. It's just it's the same as any myth um, travels throughout time. You see different incarnations. For instance, I'll take an example that was given by uh, Dr. Richard Carrier, who I know that Jonathan has debated on uh, my friend Justin Briley's show at least once. Um, he points out that in the book of Luke, there's a story of Cleopas, who travels from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And, uh, upon that road, just, just after the, the body of Christ has disappeared. And when on that road, um, Christ appears and reveals the secrets of the kingdom and Cleopas goes and tells everybody. Now, uh, conveniently, Cleopas means tell all or proclaim. Now compare that to the earlier Roman story of Proculus traveling from Rome, uh, traveling to uh, Rome, excuse me, after Romulus's body had vanished. Romulus appears to, Pro uh, to Proculus and reveals the secrets of the empire and Proculus then goes and proclaims that too. And of course, Proculus also means uh, proclaim. And, and the similarities between these stories are too many to be mere 
coincidence, they travel on a, on a road that is precisely 14 miles long. They're both traveling from a mountain to a valley and so on and so on. It's very clear that the story is borrowed. Now, does this mean that there's no historical accuracy in the Gospels? Of course not. What it means is that the Gospels are riddled with myth, and it's not an easy task to discern what is history and what is not. And if the only evidence that we really have for a bodily resurrection comes from within these texts, then we should be incredibly skeptical uh, before we try to accept it. Okay, what are your thoughts here, Josh? Well, I think it, I, I think it is quite an interesting um, argument, but it's not a very good one at the same time, because I personally think that similarities don't mean a copy throughout history. I mean, there's this common phrase, history repeats itself, but the reason why that phrase exists is because history does actually repeat itself a lot. And as a result, the fact that there are similarities between two points in history, I, I don't see as a forgery at all, because these situations can certainly happen over and over again. And, and as I've said previously at the start, it's like these claims which we're using to argue for the resurrection are supported by a variety of, of different historical sources, such that even if we threw away the entire Bible in our pursuit, there is enough evidence, I think, in Tacitus, Josephus, Tertullian, and all these other sources to be able to provide a similar the powerful case for the resurrection without the use of the Bible at all. So mythology or not, I think that uh, this argument uh, doesn't stand, e even though I don't. Uh, you muted yourself, Josh, at the literally the last second. Josh, you there? Can you hear me? Josh? I have returned. Sure? I have If you're listening live, can you hear Josh or can you not hear me? Can you hear me now? I can hear can you, you now. Yeah. Okay, sorry, I think I bumped my mic a bit and then StreamYard like, okay. pushed my audio input to something completely different. But, but essentially, I was just saying that I genuinely don't think it's mythology, but, but honestly, it, it isn't a very big challenge to um, the, the resurrection because even if you get rid of the entire Bible, you still have a very powerful case for the resurrection. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I agree with you a lot, and I'll just add on. Um, the first question I just always wonder when I think about this is like, why are first century Jews using pagan texts to like create their like Messiah figure when they despise paganism? Like if you look at like, like a devout Jew doesn't like paganism. It's not like, I just don't see why they would use like pagan texts, um, to create their, like their Messiah. Um, it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, Alex is only showing correlations. He never shows where they're actually plagiarized, which is a super important point. Because I've been reading uh, William Lane Craig's new book on the historical Adam, and he's been talking, like the chapter I've been reading, he's talking about the idea that like the, the Genesis 1 through 11, like it's stolen from accounts like the Epic of Gilgamesh and stuff. And he brings up, it is very tricky to show that it is caused the causation. You can show correlations, but you have to show where like things are directly borrowed, um, say with, like say same, like shared like language roots or like people like citing the same things. Like you have to have some sort of like evidence to show how like, say the Christian authors are looking at the story of Cleopas and then using it. Like, and Alex doesn't show any reason. He just shows correlations. And there's a great example that is used here to talk about like why correlation doesn't equal causation. And I'm just going to read this from Craig's book on page 73. And he talks about this. And it's a famous example regarding the Titanic and the correlations between a novel and the actual event that happened a few years later. So here's what he says. He says, one problem is that isolated, even if striking similarities may exist between two narratives that are independent of one another. An instructive illustration of this point is Morgan Robertson's novel, The Wreck of the Titan, published in 1898, 14 years before the sinking of the Titanic. In Robertson's story, a great ocean liner, Titan, the largest in the world, was said to be unsinkable. One night in April, it strikes an iceberg on her starboard side in the, on the North Atlantic, 400 nautical miles off Newfoundland. It sinks and most of its passengers and crews perish in the icy waters owing to a lack of lifeboats. The points of commonality with the sinking of the Titanic there are even more are quite uncanny. 
When read in their literary context, they are part of the story of John Rowland, a young deckhand who survives the wreck, is charged with kidnapping a female passenger, is exonerated, drops out of society, and finally reemerges as a successful government civil service. If one did not know the date of Robertson's novel, one might as well surmise that it was a fictional account based on the sinking of the Titanic. So Craig uses to show that like correlations don't mean causation. Like Alex still has all his work in front of him here where he's going to have to show that like first century Christians or second century Christians are borrowing um, these texts to first century Christians are borrowing these texts to like create their own story. So that's, that's the point. So there's still a lot of work here that Alex has to do if he wants to make this point. I completely agree with you. And I think that that is definitely a great thing to keep in mind. The thing is just mm -hmm. phenomenal. Yeah. And the only thing I, one thing I just thought of is like, if C.S. Lewis's point is true that like the Christian Christianity is like the true myth, the sum of all the myths, this is all, and it's like the true representation of God. Like also something like having similar pagan stories is something we'd expect. So in that sense, if we were like in a Bayesian sense, it wouldn't be much evidence against like the, un the historical unreliability of the gospels. So yeah, that's my thoughts. Let's pull up this next clip. Now, again, consider the level of the claim here. Uh, allow me to elucidate with an example. If I were to claim to you that Alfred Hitchcock had risen from the dead, what would it take to convince you? If you saw a similar presentation with the same kinds of historical facts that have just been presented and the same kind of appeals to scripture, but the claim was instead of Jesus rising from the dead, Alfred Hitchcock, would any of you be convinced? I certainly wouldn't be. Now, imagine I say that uh, I have a set of texts that are not internally coherent. They're not confirmed by any other historical data. And elsewhere within these, uh, within these uh, sources, there's myth and allegory, and we can't really tell uh, which is which. And it's these texts that have given me the evidence that Alfred, Hitch uh, that Alfred Hitchcock rose from the dead. This certainly would not be enough for any intelligent person to accept, even just if the claim was not as extraordinary as uh, somebody raising from the dead. But with the level of the claim, I think we should require a, a whole lot more, uh, a whole lot more than this. Um, imagine you found a book on nutrition. Uh, and uh, it contained a similar level of, of inaccuracies. The chapters contradict each other, and uh, you, you become convinced that somehow the recipes may be allegorical in some areas and, and, and not in others. And then the book makes uh, an outrageous claim, like, like that you should cut fiber from your diet entirely. Would you trust that claim? Of course you wouldn't. And that's not just because the claim is so ridiculous. It's because you have evidence that the book is not trustworthy. Now, again, we're limited in time, and there's more to be discussed here in terms of the evidence that's been provided. But one thing I want to point out is that this is something of an irrelevancy, because there's still a Okay, before we get into this irrelevancy, what are your thoughts here, Josh? I mean, if he's talking about irrelevancy, do you know what also is irrelevant? His entire argument. No, I'm joking. Oh, I don't yikes. want to be that mean. We love but, you, Alex. <laughs> but, uh, but, but to be serious, that's, I, I would like to just say that let's judge the case for the resurrection with Alex's standards. First of all, he said it is not internally coherent. Well, in reality, no, like, I, I just want people to understand if there's any takeaway that you come from this. Uh, video is that there is no such thing as a completely a completely similar or a completely coherent body of works. And I'm not saying a, a completely coherent text. Of course, you could find that. But what we're seeing in the Bible is a body of works. It is a collection of different texts. It's a collection of different um, books put together by different writers. So that's how we should view the Bible. In the same way, we're looking at uh, the historical case of the Christian or I mean, or any other thing in history, look at us, all the text for the Tet Offensive, look at all the text for um, the Peloponnesian Wars, anything. Find me a first coherent text uh, or a body of works. You'll never find that. I, I could assure you that unless you find only one person writing about the situation, you'll never find a completely coherent set of works about the text. So that I don't think is a historically uh, strong argument. 
Secondly, he says, it's not confirmed by any other data. It's only one book. That is not the case. Within the Bible itself, there's at least four sources which talk about uh, the resurrection. Building upon that, that's not to mention Tacitus, Suetonius, Josephus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and others who constantly raise different parts of the resurrection account, the different facts that we use to point towards the resurrection. So this is not just, just one account that we're looking at. There's at least 10, if not more accounts. Then finally, his idea about myth and allegory, I, I don't necessarily think it's a problem, especially if we're looking at a historical text. And as you can see here, I'm looking at this purely from a historical perspective, not about religious theology, any of that. I'm throwing all those doctrines out the window on purpose, just to look this, at this from a purely historical case. We can see that throughout history, throughout the works that we use, myth and allegory are, are just so ripe and so commonly used. For example, in Herodotus, one of the greatest historians for Greek um, uh, history around uh, four, 400 to 500 uh, BC, he talks about gods. He talks about, he talks about ants coming out of the sea. I mean, these are all are clearly allegories. I don't think anyone has ever tried to believe that Herodotus was like, especially say historically, ants were literally crawling out of the sea and fighting against Greeks. I don't necessarily think that that is the case. So, I mean, throughout history, we see myths and allegories, but that doesn't take away from the what we can get gain historically from the source. So I don't necessarily think that, Alex, if you're just looking at this purely historically, there is any actually any substantive criticism that he raises. You make a really good point, Josh. Like, if you don't want any discrepancies in like to believe a historical phenomena, you're going to have to deny most of history because anytime you have more than one account, like there's going to be minor details where sources are going to disagree. But just because they disagree on minor details doesn't mean we throw out the event as a whole. Like that'd just be really bad history. Historians would be out of a job. Um, and yeah, that'd be really bad. So we don't want that. Because um, like, if we say that's a problem, well then like 9-11 deniers and Holocaust deniers can use similar arguments to Alex and say, hey, there's discrepancies in the accounts. So the event must have just like not happened. Um, so yeah, that's, I just add on, but that was really good, Josh. So yeah, let's get into this final clip of the day. Still a whole lot more that needs to be done. The resurrection does not automatically prove divinity. This is not a point that I think is pressed enough. For instance, let me give you an example. Imagine I were to say to you uh, that um, rape is sometimes permissible if the victim is attractive enough. What would you think of me if I said such an awful thing? You'd think I was some kind of moral monster. But then I say, oh, no, sorry, I forgot to mention, I, I rose from the dead the other day. Are you going to be any more convinced by my moral claim? I don't think so. Uh, and this is even if I were to prove that I'd risen from the dead. If I say, yeah, you should, you should trust my moral claims, and you should trust my extraordinary historical claims and truth claims, if I claim that the earth is flat or whatever it may be, simply on the basis of the fact that I rose from the dead, I don't think you'd be able to convince. And that's even if I was able to prove to you that I had risen from the dead. What we're dealing with is not just a, a case where we know someone's risen from the dead, but where we have maybe some good reason, maybe not to believe that he might have risen from the dead. Uh, and, and all that we have to, to support that is something along the lines of, well, the disciples seemed to think so. Uh, according to whom? Well, of course, according to uh, the gospel. That's a question I'd also like to ask um, Jonathan, is if you have any extra biblical evidence. And by extra, I don't mean extra biblical, please. I mean <laughs> extra biblical evidence. Alrighty, here we are, and there's all my NFL highlight videos that I watch when I should be doing homework. Um, Josh, what are your thoughts on this final clip? I mean, I think uh, his analogy to rape is completely flawed because I mean, it it, it has the hidden pre premise that someone who could rise from the dead could also make such a statement, which I don't think is necessarily the case. Because if someone could rise from the dead, I think they're pretty, they're God, and if if they're God, then they're perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, I think this is a point where if you talk to Alex now, he's going to have changed his mind. Because I think in some video he talks about, like, the idea that, like, um, like the common atheist claims, like, maybe I'd believe in, like, the Christian God, but I wouldn't worship him. Like, he, like I think Alex 
in one of his videos dismisses that and says that's a bad argument because if God is perfect as like Christians typically define him, then like that argument's just not going to work. Um, so that's what I was literally going to say. It's just like, yeah, if we define God as well, not if we define God, but if God is perfect is like tradition and um, just like understandings of God traditionally like believes, then like he's perfect. And like, it doesn't really, it's not going to be like a, an issue. So yeah, that was all I really had on that. So you have anything else, Josh? I think, yeah, I, I, I think the point that you raise is definitely very true. And I think, I think the point that Alex or, or perhaps another interpretation of Alex's text is saying, well, if someone rose from the dead, is that truly a claim to divinity? And I think this idea perfectly illustrates the parable of Lazarus and multiple other points in the Bible, such that where they say when when atheists critique them, the writers then say, well, God hasn't provided enough evidence. Well, the clear response here is, well, even if God provided you every single evidence you needed to know that God exists, you still will not believe in God. Because if Alex is saying here that someone rising from the dead would still not convince him of someone's divinity, I honestly don't know what else God could possibly do to convince someone that there's he's divine. You can see him appearing on the sky. A lot of people like to say, well, oh, if I see some certain writings on the wall or writings in the sky, I'll believe in God. Well, I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of atheists dismiss similar claims in the Bible saying that's just a hallucination. So it doesn't, to me, at least seem it's possible for anyone to to actually find a situation where the the Christian could actually prove any any good reason for God to exist without the atheist just throwing out one of his millions of arguments to just, oh, dismiss it as a hallucination or this or that or whatever, because nothing's ever going to convince them. So I think that this point of Alex, just or this, this other interpretation, is just a case uh, to prove that no matter what God does, they'll always be able to find a way to disprove it. As a result, there is no problem of this hiddenness problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting stuff here, Josh. So much fun. And we'll go to concluding remarks just here here in a second. But I do want to say, just take a minute to pause and say thank you so much to everyone who's been tuning in. Um, if you're new here, I always encourage you to subscribe. Hit the subscribe button if you're watching live or on YouTube. And if you're on podcast, you can press subscribe as well. Uh, leave a review if you're on podcast. Really appreciate that. And leave a like if you're listening via YouTube. And if you really enjoy the channel, um, consider becoming a member. We do have a new member to thank. So thank you to Josh Carnes for becoming a member through YouTube. Really appreciate your support to keep the channel going. And if you enjoy the channel, you can become a member for $1.99 a month right now. You can click the join button on YouTube or there's links if you're listening via podcast. Um, but with that out of the way, Josh, what are your concluding remarks? Because like I really enjoyed this video and I feel like the energy was like flowing today. Um, so, yeah. I, to conclude, I think this has been a fascinating video. I always love uh, discussing the resurrection with people. And I, I to, find, to finally kind of end off the, the discussion is to really say that we're not viewing this from a theological statement. I mean, perhaps from a theological statement, you you could provide a different argument. And I think that that is definitely fine as well. But if we're purely focusing from histo- historical um, standard, you realize that, well, maybe most or at, or even all of the arguments that Alex raised do not necessarily apply significantly if we're looking this seriously from a historical perspective. So that's just something that I want you guys to just keep in mind that we don't expect full coherency or no contradictions at all when we're looking at history. Historians never look for a complete coherent worldview. They're completely open to the ideas of contradictions. And it's and it is actually via these contradictions that you learn more about the sources you're using, which makes that even more useful for your uh, development of the truth or understanding about historical claims. Yeah, that's super well said. And I think I probably just echo everything you said. So I'll just add on to like to like Alex, if you ever like listen to this, really appreciate you, Alex. You do great content, stuff like this. And I hope that like 
even if you disagree with us, you found this edifying. Like Josh and I aren't here like out there just trying to like destroy the non-believers or whatever, but really just like look at these things, think about them critically um, and hope that it just serves you in your search for truth. Cause you know, like hopefully like Christian atheists, like whatever you believe um, you really just want truth out there and you just want to follow truth wherever it leads. And we think it leads to a resurrection, but I mean, if you have counter arguments, you know, let's do it. It's fun. It's always fun to engage these things. So yeah, Josh, thank you again for coming on. One of these days, I'll be able to add apologetics for all on like the YouTube like title. For some reason, I still can't. I tried this morning right before we went on. Um, but your channel is linked down below. So I highly recommend Josh's content. So you can check that out. It'll be in the show notes too if you're listening via podcast. But yeah, Josh, thank you again for coming on. It's been so much fun. It's always a pleasure being here. Thanks. Though. Yeah. And to Oscar, Curity, Ken, um, John Dunphy, Jordan, everyone who's here, wish you the best. Have a good rest of your day and a good morning or a good evening or a good afternoon, I guess, depending on where you are. Have a good one and God bless. God bless.